If you would, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We're going to start where John Lim ended last Sunday. In the past several weeks, John has been highlighting from the book of Acts the value and the role of gathering and fellowship in the kingdom of God, how, how it's a central, a central element of God's kingdom. And he and I have kind of joked or noted the irony of an emphasis of gathering at the same time that, you know, Omicron is out here. You know, we thought, come 2022, it's time to regather, you know. Put, let's put COVID behind us. And then Omicron shows up. And so I want to say the irony is not lost on us. And I don't want you to hear the admonition to gather as um, a way of being bullied out of, uh, you know, uh, what you might say is your proper health behavior at this season. That's not at all what's trying to happen at the same time, okay? So, so take the truth of God uh, in, in the way it ought to be heard here. At the same time, I think we all would agree that COVID should not be able to make a permanent mark on our theology of gathering. And the longer it goes, and the more that you've responded to this, I would say to, uh, to those of you who have been very aggressive in your isolation for your health, and which may be the best thing to do, so don't hear the wrong thing there, but the more aggressive someone has isolated on account of COVID, the, the higher the chance that it sort of makes an indelible imprint on your theology of gathering. And I just wanted to just, I want us to know from the word that the fellowship is central to the kingdom of God. It's central. And we're gonna look at a, a, a dimension of this this morning as we head into baptism. So uh, John Lim pointed out a few different examples of where the fellowship is important. I thought I would take a slightly different tack this morning and do some addition by subtraction. I want to highlight the value of fellowship by drawing attention to the things in the early church that seem to matter less and less uh, among the Christians. So let's just take, for example, the temple. Before Christ, the temple is, you might say, the central fixture of the Jewish faith. After Christ, the temple no longer matters. It's not important. The idea of the promised land is no longer important. The idea of the Jewish calendar and the holy days and the festivals, no longer important. The rituals, the sacrifices, the food, the clothing, the Sabbath. I mean, can you, let's just appreciate for a second the fact that the early church, before not too many years had passed, before the early church moved, celebrating the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, that kind of freedom is tremendously important for us to see all the things that used to matter. And they didn't just kind of matter. They really mattered. They defined Jewish identity. All these, all these things, temple, promised land, ceremonies, circumcision. Circumcision is released. That was the defining mark of what it meant to be Jewish. It was let go of. So you have, in early Christian life, 
you have a largely Jewish community that's coming to terms with releasing a hold of these rituals and these forms and these structures, okay? Not because they don't matter, not because they were silly, but because they've been fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus Christ, okay? So they've been, in many ways, realized in Christ. So the worldly type can be let go of because Christ has satisfied the priesthood. He's, he's satisfied these things. And so as Christ has fulfilled these things, the early church let them go. And in letting them go, I, gain, I don't gain any sense at all in the New Testament that their frequency of gathering went down. In fact, my hunch, I'm of the opinion that if anything, it might have gone up. We see passages like in Acts 2 where daily they met in the temple courts and they also met in homes. They, they met in the temple court to receive the apostles' teaching and they met in one another's homes. It seems like they're meeting, they're gathering, they're coming together every bit as much, if not more, even though so much of the ritual and the form that used to fill Jewish life has been removed. Now think about that. Think how, how real and how profound the gathering of the fellowship is intended to be. Out with the forms, and the fellowship continues to swell in God's kingdom. And we can see that, and we can almost do the same thing, apply the same principle, sort of addition by subtraction, if we look at baptism. Just think about it. Baptism, you might think, if you think of it as a ritual, or at least some element of a, as, as a, an ordinance that, that the people of God continue to do, I want us to appreciate all of the other rituals or ordinances that the church let go of. So they let go of sacrifice, they let go of circumcision, they let go of Sabbaths, they let go of clean, unclean, diet, what you can wear. Pretty much most of the structural nature of the law they let go of, except for baptism and the Lord's Supper. And baptism, which was a peripheral idea, it was a peripheral ritual of Jewish faith. Baptism existed in Judaism as a way of ushering someone from being a Gentile to a Jew. That that idea which sat on the perimeter of Judaism has now found itself, when everything else has been let go of, it finds itself towards the center of the faith. That's worth noting. That baptism's not showing up because the Christian church is adding things. Baptism is migrating to the center as the Christian church is dispensing with things. To me, that highlights its importance and we're going to see this today. I want us to look at, at, we're going to look at three passages. And what I want us to observe is that baptism is important. And it's important by virtue of what it means, not as it exists as a ritual. So as we read these texts, I want us to gain a sense of baptism matters because of what it means. And I hope we can see that as we sort of lean forward because after this message, right, we're going to be able to worship through baptism. Uh, so let's look at Acts 18. And I'm going to pick up in the 24th verse, which uh, I'll read a section. This section was actually read last Sunday. So we're going to kind of go over it again. But this time, rather than interested in Priscilla and Aquila, our attention is going to be baptism. Here's what it says. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Okay, what can be said about Apollos here? Well, we can say he gets it right. And Apollos shows up on the scene, and this is the first time he arrives in the Bible. He gets it right. He's competent in the word. He is instructed in the Lord. What does that mean? It means he knows the story of Jesus Christ. He understands the Old Testament. He knows the story of Jesus Christ, and he's able to connect the two. Okay, that's Apollos. He's fervent in the spirit, it says in a way that he says he accurately teaches about Jesus Christ, with the exception of the fact that he only knows of the baptism of John. And then we see this. We see that Priscilla and Aquila, they pull him aside, they set him straight, and then off he goes on his way. So what can we note from this? First of all, I think it's important to appreciate that baptism is not a trivial subject. It's a a reality in the life of the church where the nuances seem to matter. It's not that that Apollos is not baptizing. It's not that he doesn't understand baptism. You might think to yourself, well, this is a nuanced issue. But to Priscilla and Aquila, this is not a nuanced issue. This is an issue where they're going to take this gentleman aside, explain to him, and he's going to go on and And we know from 1 Corinthians, he's going to go on and he's going to baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. So it's not a trivial subject in the early church. Quite the opposite. They're interested in correcting it. In other words, not every baptism is equal because it's not a ritual. In fact, this is not at all about the nature of the ritual of baptism. We're not talking about the mode of baptism. Those who were baptized uh, received John's baptism. We have no reason to believe that it looked any different at all from those who received the baptism of Jesus Christ. I mean, the baptism, the the process of going into the water, our understanding of the word is this immersion in the water, this picture that you're going to see this morning that it's, that John did it the same way that Jesus did it. So it's not the mode that seems to be at issue. It's not the ritual that seems to be at issue. It's the meaning that seems to be important to Priscilla and Quilla. It also is not an, an issue of who administered it. It's not as though, well, you need to be baptized by Jesus, okay? So the baptisms you're gonna see this morning are people being baptized in the name of Jesus. The who's administering it is not important. It's the meaning I'll say this uh, with care, but I think it's important to say this. 
Baptists, okay, people with a Baptist heritage, historically focus on the mode as being the important thing. And in the text, in the scriptures, it seems that the meaning is what matters. Now, I'm not saying the mode is without meaning or that the mode is entirely irrelevant. I don't think those things. But I want us to, I want us to appreciate God's hierarchy, which is why the why someone's getting baptized, the what they think about baptism, the role of baptism in their life. These are the things that seem to really matter to Priscilla and Aquila. This is what they're intervening on. It seems to be an issue of meaning. Okay, let's look at a second example. It's right here in chapter 19. So I'll just pick up in 19 verse one. And here's what we read. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Okay. So you have these two stories back to back, Apollos and then these 12 disciples that Paul comes across. And there's a lot of similarities in the account. It says that there's some disciples. I think it's fair to assume, I think the appropriate way to think is these are followers of Jesus. They're not disciples of John. They, they're following the Jesus they understand. And Paul is visiting with them. And in the conversation, Paul, for some reason, and I'm curious to know, we don't know what it was that would call Paul to ask this, but somewhere along the way in their conversation, and I'd be interested, one day I'm gonna ask Paul this, uh, he decides to ask the question, hey, when you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And what it, for whatever catalyzed the question in Paul's mind, it clearly is the question he should have asked because the answer just sort of blows the conversation wide open. He says, when you believed, did you receive the, the Holy Spirit? To which they say, what is the Holy Spirit? I mean, Clearly, Paul has honed in on a significant problem. But what I want us to note is the next question. His next question is, into what then were you baptized? Now, that's fascinating to me. That's fascinating to me. I would say, and just personally, over the past year, year and a half, uh, I, I feel and it's come through study of the word, the ministry of the Holy Spirit has migrated closer and closer towards the center of my life and of my understanding of Christianity. 
Uh, but I would say this, there would have been a time in my life where these two questions that Paul asks, I would have said, what do the two have to do with each other? What does the Holy Spirit have to do with baptism? Like, but notice, he's visiting with them. Something seems off. So he asks, hey, when you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Okay, they say, what spirit? And his next question, just pay attention to, think about this, brothers and sisters. His, the, his next question is, is, what kind of baptism did you get? There seems to be some close relationship to the baptism of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which in his perception, they, have, they don't have that connection at all. So it says in verse five, he baptizes them, lays hands, they receive the Holy Spirit, they begin to speak in tongues. Now, I think this, this picture in verse five is a beautiful illustration. It's emblematic of the nature of the Christian life. So in other words, I think it's a very, very highly developed picture, an exceptional picture of what, of what life in Christ looks like. We believe, belief is followed by repentance. Repentance is followed by following Jesus, which is marked by baptism. Baptism is a mark of following after Jesus, which is marked by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is typified here by the gift of tongues. That picture of belief, repentance, following the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for Christian life. That there is just beautifully illustrated here. And I, I just wanna point out, there's some traditions of the Christian faith that say, hey, this is more than just an illustration. This is actually procedurally what you need to expect. Some will say, faith leads to repentance. Repentance should lead to baptism. Baptism will lead to being filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will eventually show up in the speaking of tongues in such a way that the speaking of tongues becomes the mark of experienced faith. And I would say, I think that's going too far. I think that's problematic. I don't think that that, that ends up creating a church that is dependent upon the gift of tongues to sort of validate faith. And I don't think that's at all Paul's interest here. I think this is a, a beautiful illustration that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a validator of faith. Baptism in Jesus Christ is not simply saying we're sorry and being washed. It's being given new life in the spirit of Jesus Christ. And that's a big difference. That's a huge difference. If we just step back and think of baptism generally, I imagine, especially in a, a, a faith diverse community like our own, there might be a lot of different views on baptism that have sort of come into this house of God. And some of those are, are the kind, like the differences that we find with Apollos. You kind of set someone straight, explain it off on your way. It, you have the same gospel, you know the same Lord, you have the same understanding of the way God works. You have the ministry of the spirit in you, right? Apollos was fervent in the spirit. It's just fix this, adjust this on your way. There's others though, there's others who come into uh, our fellowship whose view of baptism in a way preaches a different gospel, 
a kind of gospel. That's what's wrong here is you have these 12 disciples, these 12 followers of Jesus that are following in a way that's devoid of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They're following in a way that's anchored in, I'm not clean and I need to be washed, which is half the gospel. It's half the gospel. It's not that the baptism of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with that. It's that the baptism of Jesus Christ is, no, you're so filthy, you're dead. But in Christ, you rise and receive his spirit. I want to show you one more reading. One more reading. It's Acts chapter one. So if you just go to the very beginning, and I'm going to the beginning because I just want you to show, I want to show you this subject of baptism is not, a, is not peripheral. It's at the center and the meaning is important. And when you read the scriptures, the baptism of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit are adjacent to one another. They belong together. Listen to this. This is Acts 1. I'm gonna pick up in verse four. These are the last words that Jesus has to say to the apostles before he ascends into heaven, okay? You might imagine this is an important time. Here's what it says, verse four. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And he goes on to say these familiar words in verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Do you see the intimate relationship between baptism and the Holy Spirit? John baptized with water. Jesus. Life in Christ is not simply about being forgiven from your sins. Life in Christ is life in the Spirit. It's life. That's what Jesus is promising to you. Jesus is promising more than simply, hey, come in the water and it'll symbolically show how you were once sinful, but God's forgiven you of your sins. He says, that's, that's fine and that's good. And it's not enough. You're gonna come out of the water and still be sinful. The real gift, the real gift of Jesus Christ is through his resurrection, we receive a spirit of life through which we can cry out to the Lord. It's the spirit of God that works in us to produce the fruits of God. There's a song that I, I, I really like, and it has this line in it. This is the line how the song begins. It says, it, the song is about the blind man in the gospel of John who receives sight from the Lord. <clears throat> but the song starts this way. The blind won't gain their sight by opening their eyes. That's not the problem. The blind don't get their sight back simply by opening their eyes. They can't see. We need the Spirit. The filthy will not get clean by simply taking a bath. There's no point in getting baptized if you come out different, if you come out the same. The promise of Jesus Christ is that if through faith you come to me in repentance, then I will make you new. It's on, you rely on me, you follow me, and I will make you new. 
That's different. That's why baptism is at the center of the Christian faith. And that's why the meaning of it matters. And so I'm going to pray. In a moment, we're going to worship by uh, being with uh, members of our church who've come forward in baptism to say, to say, not only, right, not only am I a sinner who needs to be clean, but I can't make myself clean. But God has promised, right, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to put a spirit in me so that I'm a new creation. This is the hope of baptism. This is why we're here this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your kindness to us, to all of us, Lord, to the most filthy of all people, Lord. You would uh, not only clean, but put your spirit in. Lord, we remind ourselves uh, that you didn't simply die for our sins. You rose for our new life. And so this morning, I might even say there might even be people in this room who in reflection on this message might say to themselves, you know what? I think perhaps my baptism, the way I understood it was more like the baptism of John. And I pray, I pray this morning, Lord, that they might be touched by your Holy Spirit, that they might be able to be reminded and encouraged that you've given more. You've given more than a bath. You've given power for righteousness through the Spirit of God. Lord, we thank you for those who will testify to that this morning in baptism. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.